What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Bent here. Late night Thursday, post RHR rip, post rip with Parker Lewis, which you all are about to listen to. Always a great time to get Parker on the on the mic, pick his brain, figure out what's going on. A lot of energy in this episode, a lot of energy in the city that we recorded this episode, Austin. Day 10. Day 10 for Uncle Marty. Going well. Going well. Going pretty, pretty well. <sighs> the mind share down here is pretty incredible, freaks. Parker and I talk about it as well as a bunch of other things. Last time Parker and I spoke was 13 months ago before the official lockdowns, before the stimulus, before Kashkari on 60 Minutes, before all this madness. It was interesting to reminisce and then pay an optimistic future built around Bitcoin. I think you guys are going to enjoy it. This rip was brought to you by our good friends at the motherfucking cash app. You're me stack sets and sets, receive sets, sell sets, if you so please. We're saying sats, 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 because sats are the standards. Are the standards? They're the standard. There's no more stacking a fraction of a Bitcoin. You're stacking whole sats. There's 100 million sats of one Bitcoin. Cash App makes it easy to stack sats. You can DCA into sats. You can buy daily, weekly, bi-weekly. Set it and forget it. Set a set amount of Bitcoin that you want. And buy it via the Cash App. They're offering account numbers and routing numbers. So you can get funds direct deposited into your app. You can stack sats quicker. You can get their boost card accepted where Ever visas accepted. Great deals with that boost card. Check it out. Use the code stacking sats. That's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G. When you download the app, if you haven't already, you're going to get $10. And $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. <coughs> Not that dirtbag owl, but Owls Lacrosse. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle. They're bringing great products to the market for Bitcoiners. They've got an exchange. Now they've got a lending program, a lending product, a lending platform that is available to all Bitcoiners, including you Bitcoiners in the United States that want to use HODLHODL's platform but haven't been able to yet. You can use it with their lend.hodlhodl.com platform. Lend.hodlhodl is a new non-custodial Bitcoin-backed lending platform that allows peer-to-peer lending and borrowing between users globally anonymously and on your own terms. No KYC AML. If you're short on funds, you don't need to sell your Bitcoins. Get some liquidity by borrowing, using your Bitcoin as a collateral. And the great thing is you don't need to entrust someone with your funds. You lock it up in a multi-sig escrow in which you hold one of the keys in the two or three escrow wallet so you can always track your Bitcoin and make sure it's not being rehypothecated. Also, if you have some stable coins laying around, you want to get some yield on those, you can enter the other side of that marketplace, offer up your stable coins to be lent out. Bitcoiners looking not to sell their Bitcoin and looking for loans will take your stable coins and then they'll pay you back with interest. So go check it out. Land at Hoddle Hoddle. Creating incredible value and utility for Bitcoiners. Create your own offers and set your own terms on lend.hoddlehoddle.com. Lend.hoddlehoddle.com. This rip was also brought to you by good friends at Brains, B-R-A-I-I-N-S, B-R-A-I-I-N-S. 
are doing incredible things. They have been doing incredible things. They're the team behind Slush Pool, the first ever mining pool, started in 2013. They created Brains OS Plus firmware. All right, they noticed uh, Bitmain had some backdoor in Ampli. 2017, they created this firmware so that users had an option outside the manufacturer of firmware. And guess what? Their firmware helps you stack more sats. It stretches your hashes more. You get more sats for your hash with Brains OS. It's available on S9s, S17s, and T17s. They're working on what's minor. They're also working on open source mining pool software, known as Stratum V2. They're working with Macarallo and Square Crypto on that. They create incredible content for the mining industry. If you're looking to learn about mining, brains.com, B-R-A-I-N-S.com. Go look at that content. They have mining profitability calculators, or a mining profitability calculator. <laughs> There's all around good people. Brains, B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. Go check out everything they're doing. They're doing incredible things. Incredible things. Incredible things. Except for Edward Evenson. He's doing weird things. He doesn't like cheese. That's a... Yeah. How do you not like cheese? Live a little, Ed. Live a little, Ed. Last but not least, this trip was brought to you by our good friends at Compass Mining. Compass Mining is trying to make it as easy as possible for individuals to mine Bitcoin. All right, what they do is they, they take all the complexity of going from zero to having a miner and plugging it into a place with a, a competitive electricity cost. They obfuscate all that complexity and they take care of you. So you go to compassmining.io, C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G.io. You pick a mining model, you pay for it. They get the mining model. After you pick your miner, you pick a f- hosting facility. They have the, the power, the electricity costs very transparently uh, available on the website. So you, you find a hosting facility you like with a competitive electricity rate. You pick it. You buy your miner. They send your miner to that facility. They plug it in. And then they start streaming sats to a wallet that you control. They're trying to get more individuals mining Bitcoin, distribute hash between individuals. Again, they take out the complexity. Compassmining.io, check it out. <sighs> Gosh, freaks. Weird times we're living in. Good times, weird times, tumultuous times. A lot of opportunity, a lot of despair, if you look at the world in some way, but a lot of opportunity, a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Bitcoin provides a reason to be optimistic. Barker and I talk about that in this episode. We need more strong men and women out there. Stand up. Speak up. Don't let the culture decay to a point where it gets it gets crazy. We need good people. We need strong people. I think Parker Lewis is one of those people. So enjoy this friend. Dickie. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Parker Lewis, everybody. 
been 13 months since we've recorded. We've we've spoken since the last time we recorded. Coming to you live from Unchained Capital Studios. Great studio, great vibe here. It is day, what is today, the 22nd day 10 of my Austin trip. What a city, what a vibe here. What a Vic, Bitcoin mindshare you have in uh, the city of Austin, Texas. A growing mindshare. Can we talk about last week a little bit? Your impressions about uh, BitDevs, just uh, the overall scene here? Yeah, you knew it was good BitDevs. You had a probably like a 90, 10% male to female ratio. It was steamy because you had so many people uh, in one place. That feels like a higher percentage than, uh, like we're growing, the 10% yeah. is on the, on the rise. Yeah, yeah. Um, run very well by Justin, Ben, and Ryan at the front of the room. Topics, uh, very good topics to talk about, very good back and forth. Socratic sem- uh, seminar with the crowd. Yeah, great vibe. Uh, obviously, barbecue after meeting Bitcoiners in person, eating good meats, drinking good beer, some shiner. How many run the numbers shirts were given out? I mean, there was at least 200 people here, so I would, I would garner to say 150. I think that's a nice estimate. Yeah, yeah. My brother picked one up. I dragged my brother to the meetup, trying to push him. We're down recruiting the... him too. Yeah, we're, he. I mean, he's he might be down here before I am. Yeah. We're coming for all the Bitcoiners. He sold. He. Uh, I don't even think people knew Marty had a brother. No, and I don't think people knew he looked like exactly like me too. I might have done interviews with him before. <laughs> <laughs> scared people. Got the whole fam. My sister actually, she's flying out right now. She was here for a few days as well. Um, so it was a good time. Brought the wife and the son with me, obviously as well. Checking it out. We went to the park on Sunday. We did. We went to the park. Sorry, my son. Uh, I was acting up a little, being a little. Uh, a little bit of a meltdown as it's 14 month old baby's will. Um, but yeah, went on a, a good hike with Will, his wife, Ryan Gentry and Adam, Adam, Alex Leishman, uh, last Saturday, checking out the places, uh, met up for some with somebody at Loro for happy hour a couple days ago. Great spot. Good meets there. I mean, very walkable city. I've been getting my 10,000 steps in very easily. Very walkable city. It's uh, very outdoors, very outdoors know, trying to see. I'm, I'm still trying to convince Leishman to bring river to Austin. I am not, I don't feel like I'm close, <laughs> but we get you here. You get your brother, more people get off the boat every day. Um, we got a lot of momentum. I think we can get river and the government just talked about a 40% cap gains tax. So sure. We'll get into that, but you know, running businesses out in California is looking worse by the day. 43%. So you're uh, Alex, your, your cap gains is going to be like 54% all in if this goes through. And we know where Bitcoin's going, so let's yeah. make those decisions now. I hear the shit coins are taking over, though. <laughs> uh, uh, shit coiners. Alex, join us. Join us. Yeah. Uh, my wife and I were already uh, in contact with the realtor. We're going to rent. I'm not sure we're going to buy as soon as we come down here. Stack harder. Exactly. There's a dip today. 51. My auto buy hits a couple hours too. I think I I used to tell myself I was going to buy a house when a house costs six Bitcoin. Um, But now I'm thinking that like when it's sat or Bitcoin house parity seems more realistic in like the next couple of years. Oh, I've I've always had my mind like I'll buy a house when it's 0.6 Bitcoin. Really? Six, 60 million sats. This is the pricing system. Yes. The pricing system is the most important thing. Um, and the people that own real estate are going to have a real hard time with Bitcoin. 
Yeah. Well, that's the thing. That's with Austin particularly. I, I had a couple of these conversations the last few days, like with the mind share that's coming here, and not only in the Bitcoin world and the tech space as well. Is this housing market going to outperform others? But like you go to Philadelphia, uh, suburbs of northern New Jersey, Connecticut, it's insane. The Hamptons, everything's going. Like I had a cousin buy a house, went like $100,000 over asking a couple of weeks ago in the Philadelphia area. It's like, what the fuck is going on out there? Fire sale on dollars is what's happening. <sighs> Let's jump into it. Is there inflation? Is 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 the CPI indicative of of price rises throughout our economy right now? Is it a, is it overstating, understating? I think um, not not a far leap to say that CPI always understates inflation for structural issues. Um, I think that there's a reality that uh, every for every dollar that the Fed prints, it will show up in inflation. So if the Fed has increased. You know, nearly doubled the base money supply in the uh, in the last year. That that every every single one of those dollars will find its way through to inflation. Um, there's a reality that uh, when you shut down a global economy and you have a, a system that's entirely based on or almost entirely built on credit allocation, that that creates a significant deflationary pressure. But at a fundamental level, that inflation is there. It's just boiling under the surface. It's showing up in many places. Um, it's showing up in asset prices. It's showing up in commodity prices. It's there. Um, people are having to react to it because their wages aren't keeping up. Um, and that their wages is effectively, uh, wages and credit expansion is really what dictates the inputs to CPI calculations. So it's all bullshit. Um, but if you start paying attention to things you buy in your everyday life, and I think that Sailor does a great job talking about inflation. That inflation is relative to things that you consume. And if the things that you consume are going up and you're having to substitute to lower quality um, items, whether it's food, housing, anything that it is in your daily lives, um, you might not, you know, th that might not be how they measure CPI, but that's affecting you. Your, your quality of life is actually going down. Yes. I mean, I wrote about it in the Ben today. Commodities prices going crazy. Lumber up over 200%. Gasoline up like 160%. Heating oil up 104%. Wheat, soybeans, not that you should be eating these things, but a lot of people do, up. I just look at ribeyes, okay? <laughs> you know, again, not just because a lot of Bitcoiners eat meat, but a ribeye is a ribeye is a ribeye. Now, that's true and not true. Like, I'm, I'm, I secretly believe that my my local grocery store here is both increasing prices and lowering the quality. Um, so, yeah, so shrinkflation and uh, substitution of quality goods. Correct. Plus, you know, at least there's a process by which a ribeye gets made. A cow has a calf and then they raise the calf and that's proof of work. So I think that it is a great benchmark for inflation. Um, and when you see that happening, it's just, Look, there's a reality when the Fed prints money, the way that it transmits through the economy is starts with real estate and then fee because it basically starts with everything that's heavily dependent on credit allocation and then feeds its way through. Um, and, and one producer um, gets a price increase from somebody in their supply chain and then it just trickles down to the economy. It doesn't all happen at once. And that's why Printing of money or actually even money destruction is incredibly destructive to the economic functions within an economy because prices um, 
basically get all thrown out of whack, not ratably, uh, unpredictably, and uh, and ultimately supply chains break down. Yeah. So many factors here. At one point, I want to jump into the subject of Joe Weisenthal telling you, you don't know how money is created. And I told him that he was out of his depth. I, I saw that. I like that tweet. Um, <laughs> I think I retweeted his tweet. And I told him I actually have failed at this. Um, I will, I'll start, I'll start it back this Sunday. Um, but I told him that I was going to, I was going to each week, I was going to run the numbers on Sunday morning and I was going to comment out how many dollars were created each week and how many, um, Bitcoin. So I did it that one day, but I'm going to, I'm going to start doing it every week just yeah, to make a point. You got to set a cell phone reminder for that one. Um, but yeah, so there's many factors here. You had the shutdown of the economy, which borks the supply chains. You, so when we last talked, it was yourself, Kyle Bass, myself, right after the Bitcoin, it was like March 13th, I, I imagine, right? It was like right after Bitcoin crashed, the markets were crashed. It was, it was March 12th. Yeah. It was that day. It was basically... Oh, the Bitcoin cra crashed later that night. Yeah. It was, it, Bitcoin crashed in the morning. Then the, during the day, it kind of stabilized. And then we recorded our podcast and started leaking lower again. Mm -hmm. And the Dow, the Dow was down like 10% that day. Um, the Fed came out with some emergency measures around noon or, or noon or one o'clock, somewhere around there, where it was like 1.5 trillion in emergency repo funding, some other measures that they took as well. And initially the market bounced back, but then the market started to leak off late in the day. And then Bitcoin had that kind of 6K to, to 4K crash that evening. So that was, that was a historic day. Historic day. And up to that point, our conversations on this podcast particularly focused on the Fed and the monetary side. What's happened in the last 13 months, we've seen the fiscal side step in, uh, obviously with the, the, um, the stimulus programs, literally airdropping, creating dollars out of thin, thin air and airdropping it into people's bank accounts. We've had the lockdowns. I don't think we were fully locked down or even beginning to think about lockdowns when we last recorded. And so I've been saying this for a year. Actually, today's newsletter, which was a retrospective on the newsletter I wrote April 7th of last year, which is like, hey, it was right when the lockdowns were starting and the Fed was announcing that they were going to expand the, the operations and the facilities through which they could uh, buy assets. Uh, and the government was actually Trump administration talking about stimulus checks. And so you had the combination of locking down the economy, so borking these supply chains, sending everybody home from work, airdropping money into their bank accounts, and then having them go into the economy and compete for goods that are becoming scarcer and scarcer because they're not being replenished because people can't go to work. And so it's very similar to what happened in the Weimar Republic where they had to pay reparations to the French and other victors in World War One, and the French came, occupied the Weimar Republic. The Weimar Republic politicians said, hey, factory workers, stay home from work, we'll print money and airdrop it in your bank accounts. And back in the day, you had to literally give them physical cash, but not the exact same situation, but very similar. And on April 7th last year, I said, hey, I hope I'm wrong, but it seems like this is going to cause uh, pretty high inflation. And I, I think seeing where commodities prices are right now, real estate prices are, stock market, I think that was the right prediction. What do you think? Well, you know, if we kind of trying to recall all the measures that happened. So we recorded, I think, on March 12th. And then 
on I believe March 26th it was the Fed came out and basically announced that they were going to do QE beyond infinity. And then that was around the time when Neil Kashkari came out, or I think he came out just before that, basically said there's an infinite amount of cash in the Federal Reserve. Um, and, then, and then they come out with QE beyond infinity. And, um, and in those basically three months following when we recorded, from the beginning of March to the beginning of June, the Fed printed $3 trillion. <laughs> Like three trillion dollars, which isn't just—it's just categorically insane. And whatever inflation that we're seeing right now, like we haven't seen anything yet, in my opinion. Right. Um, and I think that oftentimes, so, but if we if we fast forward it to today too, um, and just in the context of this year, we're all kind of going about our daily lives. The three trillion dollars was a shock and awe. I think that is really what woke up a lot of people to Bitcoin. Paul Tudor Jones specifically mentioned it in his letter when he announced that he had purchased Bitcoin. He called it the great monetary inflation. Michael Saylor has brought it up. Ross Stevens has brought it up. I think that moment, the fact that it happened so fast in such scale, you can say what you will about the Neil Kashkari comment, but it was a $3 trillion that just got flooded into the market where they basically said, we are going to buy every credit instrument that exists to, to keep this credit system propped up. And, and, and that was crazy. And it was almost like they, they beat the dead horse and they just kept beating it. And then everything kind of calmed down, at least in their world, um, as they would measure it. But if we just come to today, this year, from January, from the beginning of January to today, the Fed has printed $410 billion, which is about $110 billion a month, which is an insane amount of money in its own right. 50% of the monetary base in 2008. Um, before they started, that is, that is yes, yeah, and that is more cash than existed in the banking system in 2008. Of all the banks, because some of the monetary basics is outside of the banks, mm-hmm. all the banks had 350 billion of cash in 2008. So just in January, February, March, and to this point in April 2021, 110 billion dollars a month, which the height of QE3, which was the biggest QE program at all of all after the financial crisis. Was eighty-five billion a month, um, and so we've just entirely normalized this this idea. Um, and I like to say that only children and morons uh, think you can print money and not have consequences. And we're going to find out. I think we are finding out. So let's dig a little deeper into the specifics of the facilities that the Fed, like so you said, that they can buy any debt they want. So they basically expanded. Uh, the types of assets they could purchase last year, and they started with corporate debt, right, to save the failing airlines and cruise ships. They're bailing out cruise ships. <laughs> Fucking cruise ships. Um, uh, per- personal distaste for cruise ships, but you know what? Don't go on cruises, people. It's, it's a free market. That's true. If people want to go on cruise ships, let the free market decide. Let's just not bail them out. Um, but, yeah, so... I think there's a reality that in 2008 they began by buying mortgages, and and no, no, they began by buying treasuries, and and that was consistent with what the Fed has always done, with the exception that they did it in greater scale, and they also bought treasuries of longer duration. Yep. 
Uh, and then, and that was really QE1. And then as part of QE2, I believe it was, they started to introduce buying mortgages. And there was a lot of consternation within the Federal Reserve about the fact that that was more of an activity of credit allocation rather than interest rate targeting. And there were um, Fed presidents that were made uncomfortable by the idea that the Fed was effectively operating a hedge fund rather than just buying one you know, government, you know, whether it was a, you know, regardless of the treasury, like in terms of the duration, they were just buying treasuries. That there's a reality that even that advantages functions within the economy that are heavily dependent on credit by manipulating interest rates, but by going directly and buying mortgages post-financial crisis, that that started to cause people, even within the Fed, to be more uncomfortable with what should have made them all uncomfortable anyways, just buying a trillion dollars of treasuries. But it shows you kind of, not necessarily a slippery slope, but like once you set a new standard, then it sets a precedent to do even dumber shit and even crazier shit because you've already normalized, well, we bought treasuries and we bought mortgage-backed securities. And there's a reality that when the credit system, because of the inherent degree of leverage that exists, um, and, and I always summarize it as the, the total amount of debt that exists in the system versus the total amount of dollars that exists in the system. And so if pre-financial crisis, it was $53 trillion of debt and only $350 billion in the, in the banking system. That's not all dollars, but it's really I, th- I really think about it as liabilities in the banking system versus dollars that can fund those liabilities as, as a good metric to, to describe the health and leverage of the banking system itself that today it's about 85 trillion and about 7 trillion. So in certain ways you could look at it and say they've delevered the financial system because they've put more dollars in. But there's still so much leverage and still so few dollars relative to that debt and that's what dictates that more dollars need to come into the system that the Fed whether they're consciously doing it I think that they I think that their actions in March, April, May, June of last year indicate that they see this as well, that their function of QE is to prop up the credit system. And when the credit system starts to collapse, basically every form of credit is figuring out that there aren't the dollars there to repay them. And what we saw last March was investment-grade credit went down 25% in a matter of a week. Um, you know, that's like the, the highest quality corporate paper. Um, and what the Fed had to do was they had to inject money into the system, into all these points of credit to prevent from basically mass defaults. Mm-hmm. And, and, and because of the nature of the degree of leverage, if they didn't do that quickly, the whole thing would just collapse on itself. It would just feed. And, and that's why Neil Kashkari basically came out. He, he was an advisor to... Uh, I believe Hank Paulson mm-hmm. in in the 2008 financial crisis, very clear by his interview with 60 Minutes and the Fed's actions this time that it was they thought that their mistake last time was that they didn't go hard enough and they didn't go fast enough and that they ended up having to do more as a function of it. But really, it's this dynamic of of debt and dollars. And when they shut down the whole economy, they had to say, okay, well we can't just put money into the system via Treasuries and MBS. We have to put it into virtually every critical function of credit to prevent certain pockets of credit from essentially causing knock-on defaults or waterfall defaults. And so that was 
um, you know, just a certain summary, and I don't have an exhaustive list, but um, they ba- they basically started buying bond ETFs that could basically provide liquidity to um, IG corporate bonds. And then I don't think, I'm not sure if they actually bought high yield, but they, they created, I think, a stipulation that said if like they bought they a bond and, that it, and then it was later downgraded that they could continue to own it. Um, and then they also created a facility to buy, um, to basically help fund the money market accounts that funded the the credit in the paper that was um, muni bonds, mm-hmm. um, and then and then they also, um, but you know, obviously they had a large program to to fund small businesses, which is a, you know separate program, but uh, but it was basically they looked at every kind of major pocket of credit and said, hey, we have to inject money here to prevent essentially defaults, um, and. And that the, the basically the whole freaking boat was bursting at the seams, and it wasn't you couldn't just put it into one seg- segment or sector of the economy because everything if you just stop a twenty trillion dollar economy for working for thirty to sixty days with as much leverage as it is, um, the the plumbing gets mucked up real quickly um, and in a real bad way. Yeah, it's crazy. I like hearing you describe that and like reliving that particular time of last year i've become numb to it like i forget like you forget like the the extent to which the fed basically blew up in their mandate and expanded their ability to to push newly created dollars into new parts of the market that were taboo to even approach in conversation prior to this time last year well what they also did was they uh there's, I don't even say it's a, a mandate, but I believe it's the charter that says that the Fed can't directly finance the Treasury um, in the sense of they they can't just print money and give it to the, the, the Treasury. And There's got to be like a Treasury bond creation between... Yeah, there has to be some credit instrument. Yeah. And so a lot of people looked at it, and, and there were certain of these programs where it was like, the, the treasury was going to take an equity position to, I think it was 10%. And then the, and then the fed was basically going to lend into these programs to 90%. And the, it's not even irony, but what's the right term? It's that the, to, the treasury to raise the 10% had to go into the market to to raise debt, so people would be like, "Oh, it was like nine to one leverage." It's like, what are you talking about? It's a hundred percent leverage, right? Hundred percent, like uh, robbing it, Peter to pay Paul. It's like, the, the Fed was giving money to like J.P. Morgan buying Treasury, so that J.P. Morgan had more cash, so that J.P. Morgan could give cash to the Treasury. Yeah, and then and then that money that J.P. Morgan could give to the Treasury became essentially the equity piece that the Treasury was putting in that then the Fed was lending 90% on. So it's just, it's all, it's just a whole house of cards. Just And and people looked at that and they said, hey, that doesn't that look like that's inconsistent with the Fed's charter? But they just structured it with a technicality to basically be, get around it such that the Fed could have, could directly fund the treasury. It was like technically they didn't, but practically speaking, they did. And in many ways, it's similar to what they did back in 2008, where, you know, one of the things I think we've talked about in the past, but it's like when we think about all of the bailouts that the, that the big banks got back in the day, 
um, or that AIG got from the federal government. It's like, where did the federal government get the money to lend to the banks? It couldn't, it only got there because the Fed put it into the banking system in the first place. Like, that was the fun flow. The, the banks were all insolvent, but the banks were the ones who have to buy the paper from the federal government to then lend into the banks. And it, and it didn't exist without QE. Um, and so it's all a racket. And I think that um, I wrote about this in Ender's Game, but that when, you know, an honest review of history, I think we'll look back. And, and luckily for us, history will be written by the winners, um, that, that this last 10 to 15-year period of time, um, that, that anybody thought that this would end in anything but disaster will be looked back on as clowns. I mean... It's hard, <laughs> like so. That's the thing. like why they have to perpetuate this. Is it is it a reputation game for them? Like, is that why you think like Jerome Powell, like Kashkari last year, like the the bug man eyes he had on that sixty minutes interview got me money printer go burr became a meme last year. It seems like the public at large, at least a good chunk of the, the public psyche of Dave Portnoy holding up a dollar, calling it shroot box, is starting to call it bullshit, right? You're saying like you're you're printing way too much money. Uh, you got the fiscal side coming out, dropping money into people's bank accounts. Everybody's now waiting for that stimmy today. Stimmy, stimmies and tendies. The fact that right. we're talking about stimmies and tendies, right, tells you that like people, one, I mean it's funny, it's a meme, but but two, that um, not necessarily all of those people, but people are seeing that that this insanity is is going on, and then you have the the, the sane people like Paul Tudor Jones or Stanley Druckenmiller or Michael Saylor or Ross Stevens. And it's not just them because I talk to a lot of people that run private businesses. They see it and they feel it themselves. They, they understand what it takes to create actual value in the world and to run businesses. And they are taking measures to protect their interests and their businesses and their employees uh, because because they know, I think before it was one of those boiling frogs, you know, and now it was you just threw a frog into a boiling pot of water. Yeah. I mean, so my parents are in a coffee shop in our hometown, and my dad this year has just been forwarding me emails from their suppliers like, hey, we're raising prices 5%, we're raising prices 6%, we're raising prices 7%. Most recent email he sent me two days ago. Like, hey, we're raising prices on May 1st, not even a percentage. Like, they don't even want to say what it is. Like, that inflation is leaking to small businesses. And, and last time I was in the coffee shop a few months ago, like, all the employees were asking me, like, all right, how do I set up my blue wallet? How do I how do I move this from the exchange? And, like, I know they're thinking as a small business about allocating the Bitcoin. Just anecdotally. And obviously, they're a bit biased because they're close to me and I talk to them about Bitcoin a lot. But... Like I guess the point I'm trying to like, what do the death service of this debt situation, this credit situation look like? I mean, again, today you had Biden come out 43% capital gains. Why are we paying tax if we're running $3 trillion? Deficits? Exactly. Why do you have to pay? T like, I mean, that's another question that came to the fore last year. It's like, why are we paying taxes? And they can just print money and give me $1,400 a month. Like, <laughs> Why are we giving stimmies? Yeah. You know? 
You know, and, and I think that it's just happening on such a scale now that, and it's impacting so many people and that it's impossible to ignore that if we were the conspiracy theorists and, you know, in the small number of people that, that recognize that this was a problem, now very mainstream normal people, you know, uh, can no longer ignore it. And I think that um, if I step back from the, the, the dynamic of debt and dollars and, and there's just a reality that the U.S. financial system, the U.S. economy, the, it shouldn't be this way, but because the money supply has centralized, it's caused the banking system to become the bleeding heart of the economy, that everything runs through the banking system and that the function of credit allocation is the primary way by which resources are allocated and the, the economy is run. In a normal economy, and, and we can talk about this in a bit, I don't want to um, change subjects just yet. In a Bitcoin economy, the banking sector is going to have to compete for capital alongside each other segment of the market, and we're going to disintegrate intermediate banking such that the sectors of the real economy can interact more directly with each other, and that uh, essentially the pricing function within the economy won't be able to be distorted, um, and that will result in a, in a much more stable economic structure. Um, but if I key in on that for a moment with the with the credit system and, and the dynamic that exists there that dictates that trillions of dollars of, of new reserves need to be pumped into the system in order to maintain that system, because that system either collapses once they print too many dollars and people don't value them anymore, or if they don't do that and the credit system falls apart, then the supply chains fall apart and goods don't show up and the dollars become worthless. So it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. It, you know, it's the Fed's in between a rock and a hard place. But on a fundamental level, if we think about the pricing mechanism, because this is what, what, what your dad's talking about, what other businesses are experiencing of having the cost of goods and, and real goods go up. What, what ultimately happens is company A is having their prices increase, so then they try to pass it on to, to, to their customers. And then ultimately, their customers can't pay those prices, and they start substituting and going somewhere else. Um, and it's not just about substituting to lower-quality goods, but at a certain point, the company's going to raise prices, and it's going to cause their business to deteriorate, and their business is, is going to be impaired. Um, and that's, you know, when, oftentimes when people think about hyperinflation, they just think about the side of it that is trillions of dollars being printed. But what's actually happening is the the price system and the pricing mechanism that's coordinating the activity of hundreds of millions of people, if not billions of people, is sending all sorts of, not necessarily false, but all sorts of changing relative prices. And that when you have a complex system such as the U.S. economy, you know, whatever the current GDP is in dollar terms, like $25 trillion, I don't look on it on a day-to-day -day basis, but somewhere around there, that, um, that ultimately certain businesses fail because they can't respond to the changes in prices. And then when those businesses fail, that means that real goods and services don't get delivered to the people that have come to rely upon them. And real goods and services ultimately become scarce relative to money which mm -hmm. is the opposite dynamic that needs to exist for money to be functional. Um, and so it's the, the impairment and the, 
failure to deliver real goods and services that ultimately creates a run on real goods and services at the same time when money is being printed. So it's not simply a function of money printed, printed, printed until people don't value the money. It's that that function of printing money causes real economic activity to be impaired because relative price signals all start to fluctuate and businesses can't react um, or businesses make decisions based on those changes in prices that cause their underlying business to be impaired and their customers to go elsewhere. Um, and that that's when we see hyperinflationary events. It's actually the economic distortion and disruption and impairment paired with the money printing, but it's the money printing that actually causes the impairment of economic activity. Oh, what makes this situation particularly scary is the lockdowns too, right? Like let's say vaccines roll out. Anybody wants to get a vaccine gets a vaccine and uh, people feel more comfortable going into the economy and actually interacting, going to businesses, spending money and getting about their everyday lives. You have that factor into this situation as well, which makes it particularly scary if you really think about it. Because again, like you mentioned, these are complex systems. You can't just say, snap your fingers, everybody's got a vaccine, go back to your your normal way of living and expect supply chains particularly to be able to just get back to where they were January 2020. Like that complex system too, the supply chain is, is thrown into this equation and that's like a lagging thing, right? Like it's going to take time for the supply chains to, to get back to where they were. And then you have a bunch of people getting back to work, getting back into the economy. They're getting income again. So there's more people with more dollars competing for even more scarce goods. Yeah. And I mean, On top of the situation you just described. like, Yeah. And, and you know, one micro example would be just a house. Think about all the inputs that go into a house. And that's an incredibly complex supply chain. And right now lumber is a big issue. And but but just use that as one microcosm and add up everything. And so when some, the builder who's building the homes, and he's also having to price the land, and you know he's having to set a price that's changing rapidly on him. That one day there's going to be there's not going to be buyers there that can afford that price. And he's just you know got a bunch of inventory sitting there that he can't move because while dollars are being printed, they're not necessarily moving through the economy in a way that allows for them to. Um, essentially be recycled from in a in a balanced way that, that causes an economy to sustain itself you can prove this with the velocity of money correct yeah but it's it's not that's one way but it's not just velocity it's it's that these people who run central banks they they think that they can just pull strings and that the economy magically goes but the reality is they can put money in the system but they can't make a sustainable economy function. And it's actually the changes in prices that cause that system to break down, um, that cause the builder to take the, the rises in input prices and then ultimately sell a home for, well, you know, for, for an increased level. And there's going to be certain people that can continue to pay that higher value of a home, but then people get tapped out and they go away and then all of a sudden a home builder can't move their inventory and then they can't pay their employees. Um, so it's just when you try to act God, act God, essentially act like a God and like think that you can control the economy as central command, it fails to recognize that the economic systems are as complex as they are. Um, and it's that, it's that core principle I've mentioned before, but I'll mention again, central bankers can put money in the system, but they can't make it 
go where they need it to go beyond that initial printing of the money. Yeah. <sighs> it's crazy times. It's fucking weird, man. It's uh somebody's got a big family and parents who are of modest means, like working like a family of modest means, like working in a small town just trying to provide for their community and seeing it get completely borked like this. Like what what is like you talk about Ender's game. Yeah, I mean you wrote Ender's game. But like what is what do you th- see the next twelve months looking like? You said inflation has has been pretty high already, but we haven't seen anything yet. Like it seems like the Fed is sort of trying to just throw everything on the fiscal side now. Like, hey, you guys got to figure this out. You got to do an infrastructure bill. You got to drop stimmy checks on people, raise cap gains taxes. Not that they're publicly posturing this way, but it seems like they're like, hey, we've, we've done everything we can. It's up to the politicians to raise taxes and do spending, if you will. Yeah, I, I don't know if I think about it. You know, there, there's oftentimes this, there's this discussion of monetary policy versus fiscal policy. There's a reality that the federal government can't be financed if the Fed isn't putting money in the system. So if there's a certain amount of dollars that exist in the system, there's a certain amount of credit that exists in the system, and that, that system is in massive imbalance, that if you... If you want the the federal government to raise taxes to pay for something, that those dollars aren't there to ultimately get to the federal government if the Fed doesn't put them in, or if the Fed, or or if, if people look to the to Congress and say, hey, we need a stimulus program, we need to do an infrastructure bill, it needs to be two trillion dollars. Again, everyone's competing for those dollars, and the system is far more than a few dollars short. And so, for, in order, every time the federal government raises two trillion dollars that that's money that's coming out of somewhere else in the banking system um and and so one way or the other the fed has to finance it it all has to come from monetary policy because um because this the system is effectively redlining um um, and so i don't think it's so much uh it all comes back to the fed there there's you know when the financial system is insolvent and there's a certain number of dollars that exist. There's only one, or there's a certain amount of dollar-denominated debt, I should say. There's only one way for those to get satisfied, and that's via the Fed. Um, and so, what do I think is going to happen over the next um, over the next 12 months? I do think that the federal government's going to come in with even larger stimulus programs to quote try to stimulate the economy, and that that is going to cause the Fed to have to pump trillions more dollars into the system um and it's 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 a vicious cycle and it and it basically can't end without people opting into basically ejecting out of the u.s dollar um and that doesn't mean like on a geopolitical basis that means individual actors within the economy people that are looking to things like bitcoin and say hey like i don't have any i don't not, i don't have a project to go invest in i'm trying to shore up my balance sheet um, I've got a debt problem here, and I don't. I've got a customer problem. So, um, I think that we are going, and and the principle is for every dollar that the Fed puts in, it's going to find its way through to inflation. Um, and so, if the if the Fed prints trillions of more dollars or digitally creates them and puts them in the banking system, that that is only going to impair economic activity. It's going to give the appearance of normalization for 
fits and starts, um, but it's all causing a large buildup of imbalance. It's a good time to be bullish on Bitcoin, it seems. So that's like to the name of your blog series on Unchained's website, gradually and suddenly, like are we reaching the suddenly part of the dollar's ability to maintain purchasing power over short periods of time? I mean, People don't like the word hyperinflation. It's like taboo. Over the last year, you, you say it, you tweet it, it never happened here. Reserve currency of the world will never happen. It's going to happen to many other currencies before the dollar. It can't happen to me is not a strategy, nor is it logic. Um, I think we've had this conversation on a number of occasions. Um, but And there was a particular slide from my presentation that I did at BitBlockBoom that it's this core idea that the marginal cost of any or the the value of any good will trend towards its marginal cost to produce. The marginal cost to produce a dollar is zero. The marginal cost to produce three trillion dollars is zero. The marginal cost to produce six trillion dollars is zero. And that people figure out, and the vast majority of them figure it out via changes in price signals that their dollars purchase less, and a year ago, or even I'd say when I was writing Ender's Game, that I would have, I would have said that it was. It's likely the next It's not this financial crisis. It's likely the next financial crisis where the, the system breaks. I think as a function of trying to play God and shut down the global economy for uh, a highly levered global economy for several months. I'm less convinced today that this isn't potentially the last cycle. Now, that doesn't mean that it plays out over 12 months, but that it feels like it's just continuing to snowball, that the insane people continue to get more insane, and the sane people continue to come to Texas (laughs) or Florida. I mean, it's hard to argue with you. I mean, I'm sitting up in the Northeast, in Jersey. People are going insane. Like, literally, like, there's no logical consistency. There's no critical thinking. There's no thinking for themselves. For a lot of people, not all the people, but for most people in this particular part of the country. And, like, we've had this conversation many times in the last couple months. I think you should tell the story of, uh, like, retreating to Texas and then attacking, going back and attacking North. Like, I... Like, this is the heartfelt conversations we have outside of the podcast and like personal conversations. Like, I want to stay in Philadelphia. I would love to stay where I was born and raised and live with my whole family. But I just honestly don't think I can uh, with what's going on in the economy up there, what's going on socially up there. Like, I'm worried that uh, as a father now, like, is, is that in the best interest of my son at this particular juncture? Or should I come down here? where freedom seems to be reigning supreme and more sane heads seem to be meeting down here and and game plan, come down here, chill out in Austin for a few years and then uh, figure out a plan to get back into the Northeast and save the Northeast uh, a few years from now when when the dust begins to settle. Well, you know, I, I think about first on the economics 
standpoint, I think about this in a number of different ways, but as people are reacting and being very rational and leaving places that are threatening people's either economic opportunity or, or civil liberties in combination of both, practically speaking, that people are leaving places like New York and California, they're coming to places like Texas and uh, in Florida, other places as well. But there, there is a migration that people react to incentives and, and that that has an economic impact. That is, there are local economies in those places that are, that, that are having little energy sucked out of them and they're coming here to create value here and create value in, in, in Florida. And that's not without consequences for the places that people are leaving. Um, and it's causing economic disruption in those local economies as well. And when you have highly taxed cities or states and their tax base is leaving and their economic output is leaving, look at the Teslas of the world or um, the the Oracles, many other large Fortune 500 businesses mo- moving headquarters. You know, if, if Tesla's bringing thousands of jobs here, those thousands of jobs are going to create tens of thousands of jobs to support this economy. And that, that comes at a cost of New York and California. It creates a vicious feedback loop because you have already an overtaxed, insane group of people that are destroying civil liberties, and it's just going to feed on itself. Um, and so that's the economic perspective. One of the, the story that you're alluding to, which because I also think about it you know, as it relates to Bitcoin, um, that when people are opting out of one monetary system and opting into the other, that re- that that's basically sucking energy out of one and putting it into another. And one's decaying and one's being built up. And for every person that converts a dollar out of the dollar system into Bitcoin, there aren't actually more Bitcoin and dollars that exist at that point of sale. Um, but the but the Bitcoin monetary network gains energy as more people store value in it. And it actually becomes a greater utility and then there's more mind share to build it up. Um, and one of the ways that I think about Texas, and again, I, I think that, that many people feel this way about Bitcoin, is that Bitcoin is a great source of optimism, that Bitcoiners are not dystopians, that Bitcoin is the path not to prosperity, but it provides us a tool to live our lives and to preserve certain levels of freedom and certain quality of life. And so I kind of joke about it, but I'm, I'm actively recruiting Bitcoiners to Austin. And in certain ways, it's selfish because I think about Bitcoiners coming here to Austin or to Texas, and I think about their physical Bitcoin coming here as well. And that the place that has the most Bitcoin is going to be the most prosperous. And so the the story that that, that you mentioned is a, it's a, a piece of history um, from the Texas history books. And uh, there's a reality that, uh, and one, I, lo- I love love the United States, love America. I'm a, you know, red, red-blooded, you know, patriot here. Um, but that um, a lot of our history, Texas was a republic. Texas was independent for, albeit about 10 years, that, that, we, that we were independent before we joined the United States. And that um, in the early 1800s, Texas was fighting for its independence from Mexico. And um, that you know most people generally know the story about the Alamo and, and the Texans lo- lost the battle at the Alamo and the Alamo became a rally cry. And um, the, the, tex- the, the Texas military or army wasn't a well-formed military. They were outnumbered easily 10 to 1 by the Mexican military 
um, which was a more kind of formal military kind of rank and file rather than the militia. Um, and that after, um, after the Alamo and after a few other critical losses, Sam Houston was leading the Texas army and that, um, he, ba- Sam Houston also was, I, th- I believe a former Senator, a U.S. Senator from Tennessee before he came down to Texas. Um, and he's one of the founding fathers of Texas, but, uh, he was also, he was, the leading the, the, the Texas army at the time. And, um, it wasn't a well-organized army, but he was basically retreating, um, or at least that's how it was perceived. But he was really just falling back to allow his troops to heal, and it was part of a strategy. And there was a lot of consternation amongst the troops um, as they were as they were falling back, and and in their minds retreating, but it was really a, a strategy. And and they kept falling back and falling back, and and the Mexican army was on their heels. And then um, in the, the I think it was before dawn. Basically, there was a sneak attack, and it was at San Jacinto, the Battle of San Jacinto. And um, they attack in the early morning under the fog, and they, they win the battle, kill, you know, it was like, I don't know the exact numbers, but order of magnitude, they kill like a 1,000 men and lose fewer than 10, something crazy like that. Um, and they won the war, they captured Santa Ana, and that was it, like that like the battle, the war was over. Um, and so it was really one of those, the, um, the dawn is, is or, or the night is darkest just before the dawn, um, where most of the men that weren't in a well-organized military didn't, uh, didn't understand the strategy, but, but Sam Houston knew that that was the only way that they were going to win. Um, and, and I think about that with, with the, you know, in some ways joking, but it's like, all right, let's all fall back to Texas bring your Bitcoin to Texas. Um, We've got the, we've got the best economy here. We've got, you know, oil and gas resources, resources aplenty. Um, We've got our own energy grid. We've got a very diverse economy and we've also got people that love freedom and that it's, you know, move down from Philadelphia, join the ranks, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll go back out and we'll, we'll, we'll save the masses, but, uh, we've got to get all the, the like-minded Bitcoiners here to, uh, to come up with a, a plan to, to restore, um, and not, not in a physical violence way, but in a, in a way to say, Hey, we need to, like, the things that are happening around us do not make a lot of sense and we need sane people to prevail. And the only way that those things happen is if people fix problems. Agreed. It pains me. It pains me so much to have to admit that I have to escape the Philadelphia area and come down here to preserve liberty from escape the place where the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, was signed first or second capital of the United States. I think it was New York City or Philly. But I mean, I can say I tried to convince you to come down to Texas like a year and a half ago. I know. I saw the writing on the wall. I gave you time. But I, you know, I really just I gave up for a period of time. But now with all this stuff happening... It's a, so there's a there, there's there's a window of opportunity now, and it, it it's really um, it's a it's a function of 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 responding to economic incentives and to incentives that are derived from civil liberties and respect for them, and that there's a benefit to being around people that have and think similar ways about that. Yeah, no, I, I sorry it took me so long, but I'm starting to say it. I just look at you as a, I mean, not only are you a friend and I want to, you know, go get stakes and have you come to our meetups and then recruit other Bitcoiners um, to just keep the virtuous cycle going. Um, 
it, you're also a bellwether. You know, you, you're, you're a good, you know, Northeastern, Matt O'Dell, you're, you're going to be a New, New Yorker soon. Uh, we're going to get you to come as well. But, uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, if, if we get, if we get you, then, you know, we're, there's, there's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to send a single to a lot of Bitcoiners out there that, um, that, that it's fun being in Austin. It's fun being in Texas. Um, it's not, again, it's, it, it's more of, of an optimistic view of the world and that, um, it's fun just if we think about Bitcoin singularly, obviously Bitcoin's a big idea um, and it's a big phenomenon, but that we, when we when we have the type of energy that was here last Thursday night for BitDevs, right? That's fun. When what we're building here at Unchain, it creates energy, and we want more people around to contribute to those ideas. I was telling Matt on Rabbit Hole Recap today, like. It reminds me a lot of what New York was a few years ago with bit devs and stuff. And that I like a thirst for that type of vibe that you guys had going here last Thursday. And it makes me better as somebody who's writing about and talking about Bitcoin. Like you need to go to that stuff to actually be able to speak articulately and, and accurately about the, the subject matter that I'm covering. And so like I, I as a Bitcoiner who's professionally in the space with this content and then great American mining probably more so, uh, I, I think I have to be done here. Like literally, unless I want to fall back in my career. And th there's just a, there's a, there's a very natural, um, there's a very natural feedback loop that happens when you put Bitcoiners together or when you put any group of people together. The people need to be around each other, but particularly in Bitcoin that when you're talking about ideas and we ultimately... Our entire economic structure is one of trial and error, and that if you're not having conversations with a lot of different people and you're not exposed to a lot of different ideas, that the output in aggregate will be far less. That if, that if everyone's kind of uh, fractured and, and not together, um, and you can think about that from the perspective of a just just being locked down, that when everyone's just away from each other and there's not. Um, you know, a way to aggregate ideas and have a lot of people contributing to ideas, you're naturally going to produce uh, far less than, than if that were the case. Um, and so I just know from, from this last week, and I experienced this, this, you know, every time we have a meetup and just having people in town, we had a lot of guys who I met for the first time that were, um, were in the oil and gas industry that you know, have, or have now come to the, to the Bitcoin world, but they didn't come from the Bitcoin world and then go find the energy world oil and gas or petroleum engineers or guys that work in the oil and gas space just um, in the in the production exploration side that they're they're starting to learn about this and they're excited about it and they have ideas and they have a knowledge base that I don't have but then that starts to get me thinking about things at Unchained Capital that I should be working on we've obviously had a lot of um, conversations just between Unchained Capital and Great American Mining about ways that we could potentially help you or you could potentially help us but then when you start to get other people drawn in that that have uh, a skill set or specialization that we don't have, then they can actually help us physically do things that we wouldn't be able to do on our own. Um, and those are the type of things that happen when you bring people together. And that uh, this is also a unique place because we do have such rich natural resources and that is such so critical to the Bitcoin ecosystem um, that when you put uh, developers together with oil and gas professionals with capital, um, with a, with a strong regulatory climate, um, and, and, uh, an energy grid that is deregulated, that a lot of phenomenal things can happen. Yeah. I mean, 
and this is something that we think about a lot at Great American Mining and talk about a lot, is like the stack, right? It starts with energy. You need energy to mine. You need to do your proof of work. You need to generate electricity to run the ASICs to do the proof of work. There's a stack being built that's going to emanate from the energy industry, go up to the mining industry, up into what Unchained is doing with lending and collateral, collateral lending. Like you can see the disparate parts of the stack starting to come together and work together. And like the new financial system is going to em emanate energy, mining, lending, capital, financial services, and beyond. Yeah, and one one conversation that, that highlights this too, which I this is just a perfect example of something I hadn't even been thinking about. My mind wasn't even open to it. I mean, ultimately, I would have gotten there, uh, but it wasn't one of the things that it was uh, one of the, the the top five things that made me excited about Bitcoin. Was I was talking to um, Andrew Myers from Satoshi Energy, mm -hmm. and uh, he was in town and. Uh, he was in town actually the week before last and stayed in town for BitDevs and talking about the idea of um, the way that the energy markets are actually funded. And so if we're thinking about mining and potentially miners becoming vertically integrated with energy producers and just the, um, the, the intersection of Bitcoin and, and energy as it's just a perfect combination, there's also this idea of paying for energy. And the idea that you could potentially, you know, as a as an energy producer is providing energy, whether it's to a Bitcoin miner or anybody else, could also be having payments streamed back to them in real time on the Lightning Network. And whether it's conceptually real time or just in a way that the the energy fulfillment and, and the payment fulfillment are happening in parallel to each other and that an energy producer could basically take final settlement of payment for what has been delivered without counterparty risk. Like that as an idea, I was like, I don't know why I hadn't thought about that, but that is fundamental to the functioning of an energy grid. Um, and so that, that potentially being one of the early big applications of payments, given that we know the energy producers are starting to really key in on Bitcoin and what it can do for them. That then it's like, okay, well, if, if I start to understand Bitcoin as a medium, as why it stores value, and that I can I can actually convert my energy more profitably into Bitcoin at certain periods of time, or maybe all times, depending on, on the source of energy, that I can then, for everything I do, potentially take a percentage of this in Bitcoin um, as a way to de-risk my whole funding operation. Um, and so I do think that that, you know, that that's just one example of the type of ideas that come about when you're around a bunch of people that are talking about Bitcoin, that the way that their minds work are slightly different than yours and they're focused on different things. And then when you put two people together in the same room, um, you're going to, you're, you're going to get, um, actually actionable, um, projects that, that, that might otherwise not come about, or if they do, they might be further down the line. Yeah. The mind share being in, a. This is the physical shelling point, the geographic shelling point of, of the Bitcoin mindshare in North America. I, I feel I feel it happening. I felt it last week. I felt it all week. I've been meeting Bitcoiners all week. I'm coming. I'm coming. We're already looking. We got a realtor. But like, we, we, like, in to go back to what you just said though, like what we see, Great American Mining producers love this. Mineral rights owners love this, especially if. Wait, you, can we pause? Yes. Great American Mining, not GAM. Yes. The Facebook. Parker Lewis, got to give him credit. He he gave us our drop the the moment. 
we, we, we don't refer to ourselves as GAM anymore. We're Green American Mining. A name that is worthy of the cause. I agree. I agree. All right. Didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, but we, Tom and I, because it was just myself, Tom, and you on the call, right? And you're I think like, Todd was there. Too. Todd was there, too. Yeah. It's like drop, drop GAM. It's Great yeah. American Mining. From now on. I literally went into like all of our literature publicly and it was just like any like control F GAM, change to the Great American Mining. <laughs> <laughs> but like you said, like the payouts particularly, if you don't have to market your gas, if you don't have to take it from upstream to midstream, market it, get your net backs, and then wait N45 for your royalty checks to come in or your payments to come in, you literally convert the gas to electricity on site, run your ASICs, point your hash at a pool, and you get payouts literally daily. If you want to as a producer, as a mineral rights owner, whatever it may be, liquidate that for U.S. dollars if you want to or just hold it in Bitcoin immediately. It's game-changing in that regard. And this is something I've been saying on this podcast, other podcasts, and I particularly want to get your viewpoint on because we talk about the Fed its role in the economy and how it affects everything. Like my thesis is that the energy producers by proxy being Bitcoin miners, the largest Bitcoin miners are going to replace the fed. Not in the sense that they control monetary policy or interest rates associated with Bitcoin. because They can't, but they replace the fed window, the, the, the place where, the production and distribution of the monetary units happens, right? It's going to happen at the Bitcoin mining layer, which is going to be at the energy producer level because they're going to be the biggest miners. And like, how do you build a financial stack on top of that? I, so I think I think about it a little bit differently. Um, Good. I need some pushback on that. Yeah. Bitcoin maximalists don't all think the same on every single topic. And that's why we talk about ideas. Um, I think about, I, so there's certain Parallels, which I w- would say miners and nodes replace the the New York Fed from a settlement layer that virtually all large financial transactions that happen through the U.S. banking system, final settlement happens through the New York Fed. And that that final settlement now will happen as a function of Bitcoin miners. For the entire global economy. Um, I think probably where I would disagree is that they aren't deciding where capital gets allocated. Um, they aren't they aren't able to say, you know, we're, we're performing a function and we're selling our energy to pre- perform this critical function of clearing and settlement as well as currency issuance, but they're just issuing currency to themselves based on proof of work and a set of rules that they can't alter. So it's like, if you do X, we will do Y. And them doing X has to happen before they get Y, which is which is Bitcoin being issued. But if we fast forward to the future where all Bitcoin have been issued, that that it will be more so that the allocation of resources will be done just by anybody who has Bitcoin. Um, and that if you want to get capital that you'll have to knock on someone's door nicely 
and pay a far, fair market interest rate. So, and I think that applies to any Bitcoin holder. And then the way in which that Bitcoin gets transferred to the person that wants to go build a project is miners and nodes validating transactions and clearing them. Um, I do think that there are fundamental transformative um, dynamics that will that will come to be as a function of the integration with the American energy energy industry and Bitcoin, um, but but I feel like it will be more um, more impacting to the real economy than it will be a financial system. If that makes sense. Yes, it does, and it touches on something that you brought up early in this discussion is is the changing in the financial system under a Bitcoin standard and the banking system particularly. Like how do you see like the, the grand transition? What is the end state of that look like in terms of like funding? And like you just mentioned, like individual Bitcoiners will be funding this stuff and investing in all of this. And it completely changes the, dyna- the dynamic of finance. Right. Yeah. And I, I think so. Um, I, I think about companies like our own here at Unchained Capital and that there's a, there's a critical fundamental difference between the the bank-like entity that we're forming here and anything that maps to the legacy world. Um, and the critical differences that are the way that we help people facilitate custody is them holding their own keys. Um, we refer to it as collaborative custody, but clients hold two keys, we hold one. I envision, just as an example, we have a relationship with GAM, and we've got a relationship with a bunch of Bitcoiners Great American Mining. Fuck. Are you kidding me? Great American Mining. That was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> I was joking that you guys at Great American Mining, the Great American Mining firm, needs a project completed. You want to go do something that is beyond just Bitcoin mining, uh, but you're a vertically en- integrated energy company at this standpoint, um, and you want to you want some Bitcoin to go finance a project. What happens in the current banking system is JP Morgan just loots its customers, rapes and pillages them, takes their money, doesn't pay any interest, and finances the projects they want to finance. In our world, we have to, again, knock very nicely and say, hey, clients, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, we've got a project. Here's the profile. Would you like to finance it, these are the terms, but you have to, you have to voluntarily opt in and that you won't do that if a fair market rate is being compensated to you or paid to you based on the nature of the risk that is being undertaken. Um, and that there will be bank-like structures, but in that world, there's the great American minings of the world and all the people in great American minings supply chain and you don't have to come through Unchain to access all those people in your supply chain. You can go direct. And so that's why I think about it as if I was to visualize the U.S. financial system, the banking system sits at the center because of the centralized source of money. And everybody, every other segment of the market has to come into the banking system and then go back out to, to communicate with each other. And the banking system also has, practically speaking, all the monetary capital captive to itself. And it possesses and controls a lot of power as a function of that. In a Bitcoin world, 
say unchained capital ex- exists and we're and, and we're operating like a bank-like structure, but we're not holding deposits on behalf of clients, but we are helping to uh, allocate capital and we are performing a capital allocation function similar to as the banks operate today with that key exception of having to ask for permission um, and for fair market rates being compensated, that unchained capital itself will have to be c- competing on the same footing as Great American Mining for capital. So we're just we're, we'd be sitting alongside Great American Mining and all the people that sit in your supply chain or other segments of the market, whether it's um, healthcare, um, water and waste management, um, anything. That it's all those sectors of the economy are capitalized. They can interact directly with each other, and if they need projects financed, they may come to the banking sector. But rather than the banking sector being at the center. It's sitting alongside, yeah. um, and it, and it doesn't have all of the all of the economy's monetary capital captive. Uh, it has its own monetary capital, uh, but it has to compete. and And if projects go south, Unchain fails, um, or if another bank's projects go south, there is there are no bailouts in that world. Um, and when you when you have a world and an economic structure that doesn't have banking at the center of it, um, you not only is the banking sector disintermediated, but you also um, you have more undistorted communication through the sectors of the economy that, that deliver real value and that the capital that sits in the banking sector will truly only be the amount of capital that it earns from connecting people with capital to people that need capital. And that will be a fundamentally that, that will be a paradigm shift in and of itself. And as you're describing us, I just can't stop thinking about like the visualization for node topo- topography uh, compared to like the traditional banking system, where you have like the spoke, the wheel spoke, the banks being at the center of the wheel, being the, the central spoke that distributes capital to everybody, versus the node topography, which is more not exactly spider web, but like it's more distributed, like. The, the, stereotypical visualization you get when you, you compare Bitcoin nodes to like banking nodes and you extrapolate that too to the actual capital funding of businesses on top of the Bitcoin network. That's yeah. It, it, that type of relationship between capital owners is very similar to the relationship between nodes propagating transactions and information. Right. Yeah. 100%. And you know, if you, I mean, if you think about it, there's, there should be no reason I mean, obviously, Great American Mining has its own node, um, but there should be no reason why, if there, if Great American Mining is just trading with the the sectors of the economy. Imagine today it's buying ASICs um, and buying power. You know, in the future, you might own power and you might be selling power to the grid. Um, that that you don't need a banking function to do that. Um, you don't need to live in a world where. I'm going to, you know, put all of my deposits for you to, you know, rate me with, you know, and lend out and not pay me market returns just to communicate with other sectors of the economy. That because we have this permissionless network and disintermediated network, that all of those functions that are just trade, which is really what money helps to facilitate, can happen on a direct basis. And there will be still financial services and there will still be financial intermediation and there will still be value delivered but again it will be a fun it will be uh, the the things that the banking sector or sorry 
to be more precise, the capital that the banking center accumulates will have to actually be for value delivered, not just seniorage. Yeah, very modularized, granular, compartmentalized risk, if you will. Compartmentalized risk, and then if, if there are payments infrastructure that are helping to deliver value, um, it doesn't come with hand over all of your rights at the door, um, essentially. It is, I will pay you a fee for a service to do this, and you'll pay me for a service to deliver your power. Yeah. It's happening. It's happening. I mean, we're seeing it at Great American Mining, like, and you mentioned it earlier, like oil and gas folks coming to the meetup. Like, people are it's starting to click. I'm telling you, I, I got giddy seeing a petroleum engineer get giddy telling me the story about how one of his friends called him up one day and explained Bitcoin mining to him. And the way he describes the story to me is like, look, I'm a petroleum engineer. I know all, I know all the economics as it relates to oil and gas supply chains. And I can't, I can't relay the story precisely, but he basically is like, you know, I'm, I basically have pen and paper out. I'm doing all the calculations of the cost to produce power, um, basically going from the, the amount, the, the MCFs to conversion to power, what I can, what, what it costs me to do that. And then, you know, kind of describes, you know, kind of ideas around transmission. And then, and then he's, and then he tells me, he's like, and then I'm converting it to Bitcoin at what that would translate to in Bitcoin. And my immediate thought was this can't be right. It's too good to be true. It's, this is too good. That's to what be true. most producers say to us, really you're bullshit. Yeah. And so he reruns the numbers, run the numbers. He reruns the numbers and he's just staring at it, and he just gets giddy. He's like, "I'm like, this is the greatest thing in the world. This is the greatest thing in the world." And then, and as part of that same conversation, I'm talking to one of the, that guy's friends, who's also in the oil and gas space, not a petroleum engineer, but uh, but but he's similarly kind of you know coming to understand Bitcoin in the last six to twelve months. And he makes a comment to me as he's as he's figuring out. He's like, "I." He makes a comment. He says, "I read every piece of history." He's like, I, I love two things, reading history about oil and gas and getting hydrocarbons out of the ground. Mm-hmm. And as he's describing to me his path to Bitcoin, uh, nod to Nick Batia. This guy was a – he layered money hooked him. Boss. Um, that, that his comment was, as he's figuring it out, he's like, I have this – this it just hits me like a steamroller that uh, I'm like, holy shit. There is no such thing as stranded gas anymore. Um, And truthfully, we've had conversations about this, so I know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to you know understand the the true economics at play. And I understand it in concepts. But when you have people that aren't like you and I, that have just been down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, that have been drinking our own Kool Aid. Obviously, we do check our biases, but to see it in people that are coming at this directly from the oil and gas sector, that's where I'm like, okay, like. I knew this conceptually and had an appreciation for it, but seeing people that that trade it actually is, looking at it from a different perspective, looking at it from the opposite perspective, and seeing more than I could possibly imagine, those are the things that get me excited. Yeah. It feels like we're at that tipping point, right? And then, like, to parlay this into the, the transition, like, it's never going to be a smooth transition to to Bitcoin from the, the fucking clusterfuck that, that is the traditional monetary system. But 
giving me the, hope that enough people are figuring it out that it's the smoothest economic transition that could ever take place. Why do you say that? I look at Venezuela as an example. Imagine Venezuela exist, existed and its currency failed and there weren't other functioning currencies around it to either get humanitarian aid or for people in Venezuela to opt out into the, the U.S. dollar or any other local currency that might make its way through the Venezuelan um, black market. That as, as devastating as the economic deterioration is that, that's hit Venezuela or hit Lebanon um, or soon to be Argentina and Turkey. S- Turkey, that imagine each of those places if the U.S. dollar wasn't functioning currently as it is or the euro or the yen, that the, these dominant currencies that, that, that still, albeit in their impaired state, are facilitating global trade because that is the that is the fundamental function of money coordinating human activity and coordinating economic trade and exchange imagine if this is how bad venezuela is with functioning currencies all around it imagine that state if a functioning currency didn't exist and so that's where i think about bitcoin i think you know that it's the idea that you can't think about bitcoin in a vacuum you can't think about the u.s dollar in a vacuum the the dollar has structural problems, as does every fiat currency, because of the chicanery that is central banking over the past 50 years. And that all exists, and that bed has been made independent of Bitcoin. And so I think about it as like your systemic issues are, are there, and and whether Bitcoin existed or not, they they exist, and we'd all have to suffer the consequences. But if we all had to suffer the consequences of that excess and impairment and disruption to come from it, and Bitcoin didn't exist, then we wouldn't have basically a backup switch to reboot the economy. We'd all just the whole world would turn into something that's worse than Venezuela. The fact that Bitcoin exists is why I say that it's as smooth as a economic transition can take because it is a functioning currency that even if there is economic disruption, just as the um, the, the feds and the ECBs and the BOJ run a train into a brick wall, um, that if we didn't have that, then we'd have nothing to fall back to, to um, to coordinate economic activity. And what we do have the benefit of is this transitionary period that people are able to consciously evaluate what Bitcoin is and to get it off the ground to a state that when those fundamentally flawed currencies truly do fall apart, that more people at least have a lifeline to, you know, not necessarily a lifeboat, but it provides a foundation off of which to to, to coordinate activity that, that if it weren't there um, would cause um, economic structures to collapse in a way that they otherwise wouldn't or that they otherwise would in a much more severe way. Yes. Said another way, thank God we have Bitcoin. <laughs> thank God for Bitcoin. Right. Thank God. Holy shit. We do have to get to dinner soon, even though our dinner gas bailed on us. Our oil and gas friends. <laughs> How are we going to change the world?
Actually, I don't even want to change the world. I just want to have a medium for me and my friends to create value in the world and store it. You know, it's like I think that um, that that's one thing I hate about like Silicon Valley that I lo- like uh, have this mentality in Austin with Unchained that's like it's just a bunch of sycophants that all want to change the world. You know, it's like just do your little thing, um, and that's how I think about what we're doing at Unchained. What you guys are doing at Great American Mining. Um, what everyone's doing in the Bitcoin space is just like do your little thing, and those little things will add up to something big. Um, and that uh, it would have been fun to to have our friends from Dallas down to talk Bitcoin mining. We'll we'll still talk mining, um, but uh, but yeah, would would have been fun. Would have been a lot of fun. But this is, I mean, I think we're gonna have plenty of fun either way. They're they're coming to Bitcoin twenty twenty one though. Well, they'll be there. They'll be there. It's gonna be a fun weekend. I'm excited to move to Austin. What what date can we get you to commit to? It's going to be post Labor Day. Okay. I'm going to miss the summer. I, I can't do the enjoy the beach. Enjoy the beach. Uh, probably early October. We've got to make a shout out for um, Prop B. Shout out to Prop B May first. Vote yes for Prop B. Prop B to reinstate the tenting ban. We're taking back the city. And you're supposed to vote no for two other props, correct? Technically, you could vote no for all others, but the important ones to vote no for, vote yes, Prop B. That's reinstating tenting ban. Uh, This is Austin, Texas we're talking about. If you're an Austin, Texas resident, vote. If you're not, tell your friends that live here. If, If you recently moved from California, don't fuck us up. So vote yes on Prop B. Vote no on DNF. DNF are trying to change the city to a strong mayor format, basically consolidates pair, or power in the mayor's office rather than it effectively eliminates the city manager. Our mayor's not as strong as uh, Mayor Suarez from Miami, um, but just in general, it's a bad structure. And then the other uh, vote no on, I get DNF confused, but it's no on both of them. F is trying to change the uh, the election year from a gubernatorial year to a presidential year, and that's a bad thing. Because you just have groupthink. Well, if you have a group of people that elect a mayor that would remove a tenting ban that causes a homeless problem to exacerbate in a city, you generally have a lot of liberal group think in in blue cities that if you if you elect a mayor during a presidential year that makes it almost impossible to have a sane person get elected yes i agree with that so yes on prop b no on dnf and as i told all the people that were at the meetup last thursday if austin fucks this up then i'll run for mayor I'll win. We're already turning Austin into a proper Bitcoin citadel, but I'll turbocharge that and I'll fix it myself. Yes, and that's a topic I'm going to cover tomorrow with Will Cole is the Bitcoin citadel. And when you run for mayor, I'll be living here, so I'll be able to vote for you. And when we have all the Bitcoiners here, it's going to be easier to get elected. Yes, and I said I'm going to move here after Labor Day. I have to move here at some point in September, I guess I'm going to 
just announced this right now. We're throwing a, a Bitcoin mining and oil and gas conference in the beginning of October. Will and it be here in Texas? It will. It'll be in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Wonderful. And so be on the Thank lookout. you for your economic development. Hey, it's the it's 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 the least we could do at Great American Mining for for all the value and and intellectual capital that the state of Texas has has provided us as a company. Well, this is one thing that uh, I'll mention it now. Safe Dean actually came here in 2018. I think it was after a bit block boom in 2018. And it was recently after the Bitcoin standard was released. And he signed a book for Governor Abbott um, saying how he enjoyed his time here in the state. I was supposed to get that to Governor Abbott, but I never did. Dropping the ball, Parker. So if anyone out there is listening that can help me get him that book, please reach out. We're... We're going to get it to him. Feels like he needs to read it too. We need to get, when you start getting, I mean, this is something I've written about in the bent a lot lately. And it's an extension of part of our thesis at great America mining is that some of these States need to start using some of their precious energy resources to mine Bitcoin, to roll into permanent funds that can, especially States that have no income tax and want to keep it that way. Um, Bitcoin mining with resources within the state can certainly make that happen. You you replicate the Alaska permanent fund, but you use Bitcoin mining as as the source of those funds. Yeah, I think you know I think one of the benefits too here though is uh, one of the things that makes diff- Texas different from a state like Wyoming or a state like Alaska is, uh, and also why it will be the Bitcoin mining capital of the world um, is that um, the state and federal government actually own very little of the mineral rights in the state of Texas. I think it's something like less than 5%. Um, But what they can do is they can create a a regulatory climate that is open, that is clear, that attracts economic development. And I think we have seen um, recent uh, movement from the governor's office to be very supportive of Bitcoin. And so now uh, when I saw that from Governor Abbott, it, it, it made me think, you know what, I fell down on this time to get back up and uh yeah so if anybody's out there you know governor abbott i've got a signed copy from safe dean himself it is dated a bit 2018 but that i think just makes it a more valuable nft <laughs> physical nft and actually conversations with the Rail- railroad commission they want to reduce flare but they want to do it in a way that's economically incentivized and not sort of top-down fiat dictated to to the producers and Bitcoin mining is that economic incentive. So I think the, the mining industry here in Texas, West, Te- West Texas particularly, is very bright in the future. It's got to figure out how we can cool those those hash, board down, those hash boards down in the middle of the summer. And, it, and it's a problem that's getting solved. A lot of bright minds. Yes. Well, Parker, it's always a pleasure. Let's go eat some steak. Let's eat steak. Peace and love, freaks. Bikini!